Good morning. Today's reading is a short one, but a powerful one. John 13, 34, 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Amen. It is an honor for me to be able to share with you, and I'm grateful. Drew, thank you for uh, trusting me to be able to stand here and preach. I have friends who don't trust me for that, but, uh, and unfortunately for good reason. Uh, I, uh, my wife and I are so grateful that God gives us the gift of being able to care for our friends uh, who are directing the um, open door libraries uh, in Europe and in the Middle East, and we're so grateful for Jim and Laurie. And they so often tell us of the home they have here with ICP, and uh, virtually nothing could make us as happy as that. Uh, well, let me just dive right in. He's killing it. She's killing it. I mean, has anybody here not heard that phrase, they're killing it? Everybody has, right? Well, I'm an older adult now in my autumn years of my life, and uh, I'm no longer as hip as I used to be, and so I can't really count on assuming that my understanding of you know, various phrases are correct. So I went to the source of all, the internet, and uh, I wanted the skinny on this phrase, killing it. So here's what I found. Killing it. A phrase used to describe when a person is being awesome or doing something awesome. Commonly used when an athlete is on his game or a singer nails a solo. Related to the PMKI acronym that is often preceded with a pound signed a hashtag on social media sites. As in, hashtag PMKI equals pretty much killing it. <laughs> it goes on. Uh, I or you did it very well. You were the best at it. You did something extremely good. As in, when I dance, I be killing it. I was killing it when I was singing that song. You killed it, homie. So that kind of gave me something to put my intellectual hands on. I grew up in Oklahoma in the U.S. And if you can just visualize a map of the United States, Oklahoma is in the geographic center. I don't know if you're familiar with the term redneck, but I think it originated in Oklahoma. Uh, and where I grew up, we took killing it differently than what I found on the internet. We took it kind of, it applied usually to deer and raccoons, to gophers and skunks and other varmints. We took it literally so that, boom, killing it. <laughs> uh, I also grew up in Oklahoma in the 60s. And so that kind of, really killing it wasn't the, the point, being cool was the point, or being groovy was even better, or emphatically 
being cool, beans. And so nowadays, at my age, when I say killing it, younger people look at me and wordlessly, I know they're thinking, they're so cute at that age. <laughs> I have to be honest, though. Even though I didn't grow up in the killing it generation, I really want to be killing it. I always have. Back in the day, I wanted to be groovy and cool, and now I really want to be killing it. I, I, I want to be awesome. That's something, sometime, and there are days I'd settle for being awesome at anything because there are a lot of days I'm not killing it. I'm not even wounding it. <laughs> so... The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is becoming my life verse. I'd still love to be killing it. In my career life, I'm more or less driven by this killing it thing. And that can be both good and bad. It drives me to give my best and to try and bring my best at every opportunity. And when I was in my 20s, it was good because I made this commitment. I observed an older preacher-type guy and realized this guy is repeating the same 10 years over and over and over and over, and I didn't want to be that guy. I made a commitment. I wouldn't be that guy. I wanted to make a difference with my one and only life. I still want that. I, I want that to keep going until I just can't do it anymore. I want to be that old guy that people look at and they go, whoa. And I know that sometimes people look at me because of my hairstyle and dress and go, whoa. I want to be in my mid-80s still killing it, like my mentor and friend Willard Black, who's in his now late 80s, and he's still... <laughs> He's still planning his next project. He's still working on his next book. He's still calling the best out of people all over the globe. It was his dream that started our Open Door Libraries, and he hadn't quit dreaming. He's still planning and working on what is next. So I've told my friends, I've told my wife, Debbie, if it looks like I'm sliding for home, you have to smack me. I don't want to give up. But that drive to kill it isn't always so bright and shiny. When killing it becomes more important than a balance in my life between work and not work, and living really well, well, it becomes a problem. Being driven to kill it can actually kill a whole lot of things, and things that are even more important than whatever that it is that I'm trying to kill. See, motive is the bottom line. Motive is the bottom line for all of life and certainly for this idea of killing it. Motive, not outcome. And some of what motivates me to be killing it is that uh, I want to influence people for the sake of Christ and connect them with His love. That's my life mission, and that's a good thing. It, it's, it has eternal value. And really nothing else matters, but there is still this dark side of it. Sometimes without meaning to, this drive to kill it sets me up with a shadow mission. 
I first was introduced to the idea of a shadow mission when a friend of mine told me about a message he had heard John Ortberg deliver. This was 10 years ago when we had this conversation. And Ortberg described shadow mission as the dark side of a person's more noble and definitely more socially and religiously acceptable mission and motivation. It's too dark to go public with. It's too unacceptable to get out front and um, public. It's too unacceptable. So sometimes it shows up as being too selfish and embarrassing to tell people that's actually our mission. And a whole lot of what we do to keep that shadow mission from coming into the light is simply irrational and bizarre. But there in the shadows, beneath all the acceptable and often spiritual talk, there it is. There it is, that shadow mission with its motivation at work. It rarely comes out in the light of day. In fact, I do a ton of stuff to keep it in the shadows. But just because I beat it back into the shadows from time to time doesn't mean that it's not at work. A a shadow mission is the ulterior motive that we never want to have to admit. And we sure aren't going to share it voluntarily. Because we'd be humiliated and aghast if somebody would accuse us of what is actually our shadow mission. But it keeps trying and trying to come to light. Um, We keep it in the shadows, but that doesn't keep it from motivating our choices and behaviors. It never sleeps, never takes a vacation. Even in the shadows, it's incredibly important. For me, my shadow mission is about being at the cool kids table. It always has been, from seventh grade on. I've always wanted to be at the cool kids' table. Back then, in the 60s, we called that the in crowd. So I can tell there are not very many people who grew up in the 60s here. So ask your grandparents. They'll tell you about it. In my career life, it shows up even today, and especially at meetings with other pastor types. I love to go to meetings, and and what I want to hear is them saying, man, that church, they are just killing it. That pastor they've got, whoa, he is killing it, right? And that put me at the cool kids' table instantly. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one in this room that has a shadow mission. The, The truth is, we probably all do, and for lots of it, I'm afraid behind any legitimate drive for killing it lurks this shadow mission. The Pharisees had a shadow mission. Uh, they, they are fun for me to take shots at. They've got this big fluorescent target on their chest. If you've, they, they were just not very good at keeping their shadow mission in the shadows. Their public mission, the one that they would have silk screened on T-shirts was honor God and keep Israel in good standing with him. But their shadow mission really was just control. By the time Jesus was on the scene, they pretty much reeked 
of this control shadow mission. They wanted to be large and in charge. Anybody who seemed to, to get a bigger chunk of the spotlight, uh, they, they, they were done. They, they became the enemy. Or if, if they stepped away from the party line, they were instantly the enemy. If you've done very much reading in the Gospels, you saw early on that they were all about their way or the highway. Well, they'd say they were about God's way, but it's hard not to see this power play on virtually every page of the Gospels where they appear. I can tell you that when the Pharisee movement began back in the intertestamental time, it was a a wonderful, sincere effort to call Israel back to God because Israel had become very secularized in that day. It was a good thing. They started out calling people back to God's plan, but by the time they were doing their shadow mission against Jesus, there was very little passion for God. There was a ton of passion for the law, but not much for God They were more interested in their interpretation of the law than they were in the God that they professed to love. One of my favorite sayings is, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Well, when your shadow mission pulls you off balance, you will end up trying to make people believe that you're still about the main thing, even though you're not anymore. You'll do all kinds of things to look like you're tracking and attacking this main thing. You'll end up looking and thinking like a Pharisee. So for most people, there's this drive to kill it and the pull of a shadow mission. What are you supposed to do about that? Well, I got a suggestion. The first thing is, I think you need to make sure that you've got the right it. If we're going to try to kill it, we need to figure out if we're killing the right it. So my question for you is, what's your it? Believe it or not, the Apostle Paul addressed this in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 6. I, it's, it'll appear on the screen, and I'd love for us to read this out loud in unison together. You ready? Is it up there? Okay, it's the second part of this verse. It starts with the only thing. All right, ready? Here we go. The only thing that counts is through love. If you're going to try to kill it, you really should figure out what particular it is worth all that effort in order to kill, right? Otherwise, You'll spend all your resources and all your effort on the wrong things. It's like what I heard about a business guy at the end of his life who said, I spent my whole career trying to climb the ladder of success, and when I got to the top of it, I realized it was leaning against the wrong wall. Man, is is yeah. Uh, There's a business leader and author, William Bruce Cameron, He wrote once, not everything that counts can be counted, and not everything that can be counted counts. Boy, is that ever true? In our enthusiasm to count, we can sometimes count the wrong things. And when we do that, we're going to wind up putting our 
ladder against the wrong wall. We'll be killing it all right. It's just the wrong it. So this is a big deal. It's a big deal that Paul defines the only thing that counts. The only. Paul doesn't even say, okay, bear in mind, keep in mind, it seems to be one of your top priorities. He doesn't say, this is, this is such a good thing and Jesus would want you to... No, he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. That's the bottom line for my talk today. And I, I want to suggest that it should be, and I think is, the bottom line for International Church of Prague. And I want to challenge you that it should be the bottom line for your life and my life as individuals. So let's kind of unpack this. Let's start with faith. Which it, this is a big idea. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation, faith is essentially the main thread of the entire story of God and humankind. It all hinges on faith. In the New International Version of the Bible, faith shows up 458 times. You've got to say that's a major theme. You could spend a whole year, I think, just looking at those 458 verses in their context, uh, and you'd still have work to do. But I just cherry-picked a couple that I'd like for us to look at. And the first one is from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews eleven six, And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Now, I grew up in the church. I'm a preacher's kid in recovery. I, I, I don't remember. I mean, I think, gosh, our rule at home was if you're not bleeding and you don't have a fever of 107, you were at church. And I, so I was raised in the church. If, if you similarly were raised in the church, you've come across this verse dozens of times. And where we generally jump to is anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And that is so important. But we tend to blaze right past that first part. Don't blaze past it. Look at it. Without faith, it is, all caps, bold-faced, impossible to please God. That's actually one of the strongest statements in all of the Bible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Every Christian that I've ever known has wanted to please God. From little kids that have just figured out that Jesus wants their heart. All the way to the oldest, most broken down old people who have said for 60 years they, they have lived their Christian life. Everybody and everybody in between want to please God. And for a whole lot of us, pleasing God is the it. It's the target. I was raised in a church of Pharisees who wouldn't even admit they were Pharisees. That's how bad they were. And the whole point there was doing enough of the right things at the right time in the right place with the right people so that God would be pleased. I grew up believing that 
God would be pleased if I did all these right things. That the norm was to just kill yourself trying to do the right things. The, if I could put a motto, and thankfully, this tells you how I'm still processing and not recovered, but I'll do a little cathartic moment here and tell you the, the building for that church was bulldozed, and it made me very happy. Uh, if, they, if they still existed, I would, want, I would put this as their motto printed on the wall, trying hard to please God by doing the right things. Does that sound anything like the Pharisees to you? The desire to please God is right and legitimate. You want to please people that you love. I love my wife and I love it when I get to please her. You know, once a month or so. But if Hebrews 11.6 means what it says, the trying to do the right things will never get us what we long for. And that is a, a sense that we please God. Just trying to do the right things and, and trying really hard not to do the wrong things it won't get us what we dream of and long for. What pleases God is faith. Nothing pleases him without faith. A little earlier in that same chapter of Hebrews 11, the, the writer pens the best definition ever for faith. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I told you I grew up in the church, I, of course, memorized this in the King James Version because we were taught that's the Bible the Apostle Paul preached from. And you remember it. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Once in my quiet time, I paraphrased this for myself, that faith says there is a reality beyond what my five senses can verify. Faith is believing, but it's not just this intellectual nod. I think lots of people believe on that level. They believe in Jesus, but, I mean, they're not going to do anything about it, right? I, I think a whole lot of people in the world kind of have a crush on Jesus. They just don't want Him getting in their way. Just believing, just having a good feeling about Jesus is not the same thing as having faith in him. James, the half-brother of Jesus, can you remember, I mean, can you imagine growing up in a family as a sibling of Jesus, the oldest child, right? I mean, how were you ever going to go, oh, it was him, not me? You can't. He's perfect. And somehow James got over that enough to follow Jesus. And he, in fact, wrote the book of James we have in our New Testament. In James 2, 17 through 19, faith by itself, and if, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But somebody will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Faith without works is not just inferior. It's dead. But 
there are a lot of people that take that passage and they, they drill down into it to figure out what are you supposed to do, 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 do. Let's make a book of rules and regulations. I have a friend who teaches in Budapest, and a non-Christian student came to him uh, actually just a couple of weeks ago and said, I, I do not believe in Christianity or Christ, but I think it's time for me to give it a try. For 30 days, I'll give it a try. You tell me what I am supposed to do to try Christianity. It sounds... See, when I heard that, I thought two things. The first thing I thought was, yee, what are you going to tell that guy? I mean, I just hand him the Bible and say, there you go, start in Genesis 1 and read all the way through Revelation 22. He's never going to do that. The other side of that, though, I thought, wow, I hope that all this doing will lead him to being and not just hang him out with doing. Whatever you can make of James 2, you have to get back to Galatians 5, 6, because the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. I think James and Paul are saying the same thing, really. For faith to be real, there's got to be some kind of expression. It's got to do something. There has to be action. To quote Elvis, a little less conversation and a little more action. Thank you very much. (laughs) Paul says faith will always express itself in love. Well, isn't that cute that you would combine faith and love? Well, he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, almost at the end, where he says, and these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. It gets read at almost every wedding, which is good. But this has to be more than a beautifully poetic phrase. It's so much more than just sentimentality. Mushy romantic love is a wonderful thing. I'd even maybe say it's a mini-splendored thing. But even though it's a wonderful and mini-splendored thing, that's not what Paul's talking about here, and you know that. This is love that will go to work and get busy when things are messy in life. It comes near when everybody else backs out. It's, pardon me, it stands with when everybody else walks away because of the hot mess. Love is a beautiful noun, but it's even a more beautiful verb. I learned my favorite working definition from a friend more than 30 years ago now. He said, love is doing for the other person what they really need. Let me say that again. Love is doing for the other person what they really need. Not what they want you to do for them, and often not even what you want to do for them. Love is doing for the other person what they really need. It takes maturity and discernment to know what that person really needs. You're not likely to know that on a very deep level with someone you've just encountered. But 
over time, you begin to figure that out because you know them. When you know someone well, you can discern what they really need. When you know them well enough to answer the question of what do they really need, you're ready to love them. All of you Greek scholars already know that the word Paul uses here for love is agape. And this is a word that you won't find in any other Greek literature. It is a characteristically and uniquely New Testament word. Agape love is God's love. It's never used out of the context of God and His nature and His ways. It's perfect. It's complete. It's altruistic. It's unconditional. It's giving. <laughs> a friend of mine calls it affection on steroids. It's verb tense love. It feels, it says, it speaks, but it does. One of my favorite books in these last few years has been Bob Goff's book, Love Does. If you're looking for something to challenge and inspire you, I just so highly recommend this. And, by the way, it's on the shelf at the Prague Christian Library and you need to wander down there on the tram and pick it up and borrow it. Um, I just, I love the book. I've reread it. The point of the book is in its title. Love does. Jesus condensed the law and the prophets by saying that it is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor... As yourself. And then in one of the very last things he said to his disciples, he boiled it down to this one thing that he called a new command. It was our scripture from this morning. John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As I have loved you. All of a sudden, we move from the poetic and the sentimental way, way down into the deep things. This, this wasn't all nice and pretty. Actually, if you want to point to a moment in time where this happened, where you could say, okay, this is how Jesus loved. You would have to go to a rugged hill that looked like a skull, and there was a man nailed to a crude cross, bleeding and beaten, I believe beaten to the extent that his followers would not have even recognized him, gasping for his last breaths. It was gory and awful, and horrifying. And it was love. Here's the deal. Love does. If you follow Jesus and you want to be killing it, here's how. Express your faith through love. Because it's the only thing that counts. Boom. There it is. Drop the mic. So, that's it? No advice? I mean, no. No. 
I have a suggestion for some homework. My, I have a saying that is, application is the destination for the information train. Application is the destination for the information train. Okay, we're pulling into application station. Here's the homework I want to challenge you with. I want to ask you to spend this week special time in prayer and ask God to give you an idea for how you could express your faith in love. I don't mean some fuzzy, I'm sorry, but religious thing. I'm talking about something concrete and specific. I'm probably talking about sweat. I may be talking about spending money. I'm certainly talking about spending time. You might get a quick answer to it. But for many of us, and maybe most of us, it's not going to be a quick answer. We're probably going to have to wrestle this down by dwelling on it with God. You may have to think long and hard about this, but do me this one favor at least. Don't take somebody else's for yours. Do your own work. Guys, believe me, you will be graded down for cheating. Somebody else may have a great idea for it, and it might spark your creativity, and that's fine. But I'm asking you to do your own processing on this and to listen to what God puts in your heart. Okay? Second thing, schedule that into your calendar. I mean, if you keep a paper calendar, then write it in with pen, not pencil. If you keep a digital calendar, put it in. I don't mean, oh, yes, and your mental calendar. You know that mental calendar is filled with stuff you never do. That's not the one I'm talking about. I mean your physical or electronic digital calendar. And then commit to a time and a place and write it down. And then treat it the way you would treat a doctor's appointment. I don't know how it is here, but in the States, if I miss a doctor's appointment, you know what those crazy people do? They send me a bill. I don't miss doctor's appointments. I say no to other things to get there. That's that's the level I'm talking about here. And then this last thing, believe it or not, I'll be done. Do what you said you would do. Partner with God and express your faith through love sometime this week. If you do this routinely, just keep doing it. But if you've never really gotten on that specific level, experimentally let God guide you to something that will change your life. Do this, and let's just see what God does with it. Father in heaven, we don't want to be trying to kill the wrong it. So help us. Direct us. We, the only thing that counts, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love, and that's what we want to do. Be our guide. Thank you that you're not like our, my <laughs> most despised teacher when I was in high school who loved to flunk kids and was looking for a chance to flunk me, which I pretty willingly gave her. But you're looking down at this and you are thrilled 
to partner with us. And that as we express our faith in love, you are pleased. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.